Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Run 40 yard dashes. Marcus Dash. 40 yard dash. Marcus Dash. 40. Marcus Dash. Marcus Dash. 40 yard dash. Marcus Dash. You run the 40. Marcus Dash. Welcome back to Running the 40. I'm your host, Marcus Dash. This week, we are talking to former NFL and CFL wide receiver Mark Bowrichter. He had a hell of a career rising through the football ranks, going to the CFL, and then going on to play in the NFL with quarterbacks Trent Green, Peyton Manning, and Brett Favre. We talk about all things Chiefs and the Patrick Mahomes effect on NFL players taking less money to play with him in Kansas City, and the possible impact COVID-19 will have on smaller schools. Give it a listen. Hey, everybody. I'm here with former Kansas City Chiefs standout, also Green Bay Packer, Indianapolis Colt, Mark Bowrichter. Mark, how the hell are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, doing well, you know, just uh, navigating the uh, crazy times that we're in like everybody else at this point. So, um, you know, obviously it looks like the NFL is going to go forward here and <clears throat> still waiting here in Kansas City to see uh, what the decision is going to be on some fall high school sports here over the next couple of days. So we've got our fingers crossed uh, on that side of things. You know, we're unique in Kansas City that the old state line runs right down the middle of of Kansas City Metro here. So I got a daughter that goes to high school on the, on the Kansas side, uh, who's going to be a sophomore and playing volleyball. And then my wife is uh, the head volleyball coach at Notre Dame to Scion High School over on the Missouri side and, and stuff as well. So nice. we're, uh, we're a little bit of a house divided in terms of, uh, you know, potentially one could be playing fall sports uh, here this fall and one could not. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a little unnerving times here as we get going through things, but uh, you know, overall things are well for sure. That's good, man. That's great to hear. I mean, obviously you'll you'll have it'll be a better year for you in the fact that you know one will actually you know one sports may not be going, so you only have one sport to go to. That's not that's not bad. <laughs> not a bad problem to have. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. It'll alleviate uh, a lot of the uh, the chaos that is normally our our household in the fall for sure on weekends. Yeah, and I was uh, telling you beforehand, I was kind of a. Uh, it's an honor to have you on the show um, as a kid. Huge fan, obviously, of the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, I collect jerseys, Chiefs jerseys specifically, and for the longest time I've been looking for a Mark Bowrichter jersey. And you watch Arrowhead Pride always uh, tweets out the, the random jerseys they'll see through, at, at training camp. And somebody, yeah. had a, and somebody had a Mark Bowrichter jersey I think, last year or two years ago. Every time it's a Bowrichter jersey, it always gets highlighted. So I've been looking for it for the longest time. I want to find one that's in my size. I'm a men's small, I'm a medium. So finding one of those is tough. So I'm on Poshmark the other day, and I see someone bought a Chiefs jersey. It didn't even have – it didn't say Mark Bowrick. It said number 85 Chiefs jersey. So that was also the problem I was having. I couldn't find – I would type in Bowrick, or it wouldn't come up. So I see this jersey's up, and I see someone bought it for the Super Bowl, and I comment on it, and I'm like, I, I have to have this jersey. The girl, the girl's like, well, I, I only bought it for the Super Bowl, so if you really want it that bad, I'm like, yes, I'll take it. I'll pay double the amount you pay for it. And I paid $50 for this jersey. Very happy with it. Got this bad boy right here. This thing right there, I like right it, there, baby. Right there. <laughs> it's not worn out either. That's good. That's good. Not, Somebody's had that, had that in safe storage over the over the last few years for sure. Perfect. It's perfect condition. So great, great for the uh, the, the the fall season coming up here. Uh, so I, and that's something I do want to talk about. Uh, let's kind of jump in right here. 
and I see you're still you still rep KC. Uh, look at your shirt right there. So. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, a, a, as most people know, you spent a better part of your career in Kansas City. What was it kind of like seeing us win the win the Lombardi this past year? Well, uh, it was fantastic. First of all, right? Uh, you know, it's been 50 years since this organization did it, and um, being a former player and still being involved uh, with the organization through the Chiefs ambassadors, through the alumni. Uh, over the past several years, it was, it was tremendous just to be a part of the ride. And, um, you know, I've been doing the pregame show here for the last 10 years for Sports Radio 810 uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs and enjoyed my time doing that. And every year we talk, you know, and since Andy Reid's been here specifically about this team taking the next step and what's that next step going to be. And, you know, a year or so ago when they lost in the AFC Championship game here at home against the Patriots, it looked like that may be the year that they were going to get over the hump and go to the Super Bowl. Obviously, we know what happened with D4 lining up offsides and the interception and everything else. You don't need to bring up those old wounds. But we can now. We can now because uh, they're world champions. And so it was a tremendous run uh, last year. The city was nuts about it. Um, the level of excitement here in Kansas City has not wavered one bit, even through, you know, this coronavirus uh, pandemic that we're dealing with right now. It's, it's taking the wind out of the sails a little bit, I think, of the anticipation. Like, it's taking the wind out of sails everywhere on things uh, for this upcoming season. But uh, at the same time, being a part of this organization, I couldn't be happier for the Hunt family, uh, for the organization in general, and for the city of Kansas City who's waited, you know, obviously 50 years for this to happen. And uh, One thing I do want to ask is, you know, when you play with Trent Green, Trent Green was great. We all love Trent. You know, I got, yep. I got the bobblehead behind me right now. Love Trent. How badly would you have wanted to play with Patrick Mahomes? Uh, badly, badly. I just, you just watch this offense and watch his caliber as a player and every single game uh, he does something else that amazes you, you know, and, and just to talk about how early on in his career he is right now with the different arm angles he throws from and the strength of his arm. And I think just overall, Marcus, when you look at this, like the offenses have opened up so much more now than what they were even when I was playing. And we, and we were in a pretty wide open offense, don't get me wrong, uh, in terms of attacking the, the field vertically and horizontally in the passing game and getting four or five uh, guys out in the routes every single time. That was our, that was our mentality. And, and it was great and exciting to play when I played with this piece. But you watch this kid's talent and you mentioned Trent Green. Trent Green was an underrated quarterback in terms of his arm strength, oh, yeah. his ability, and he fit our offense perfectly. But the things that they're able to do with Patrick Mahomes, you just can't duplicate it. And a lot of it is – I liken it back to a little bit of backyard football from the standpoint that you have structure in your route concepts, knowing this offense and being around it now and watching some of it. They've got structure within their route concepts, but then there's also freedom to, and I don't want to use the term freelance, but freedom to, to as Andy Reid likes to say, let your personality show a little bit out there. Mm -hmm. and, and he allows those guys to do that, and they're all on the same page. And as long as you're on the same page from the quarterback, receiver, tight end position, you can do that. And they've molded all these weapons in around him with Tyreek Hill and, and Travis Kelsey now getting a new extension and, and Sammy Watkins being in that mix and, you know, the list can go on and on with McCole Hardman and other guys that, that have adapted into this offense. They're all on the same page. You're right now where, you know, we're not even looking at a quarterback in the prime of his career yet, right? It's, it's only entering the third year as being a starter. 
And he's been the MVP of the league and the MVP of the Super Bowl. And talent-wise, from a receiver standpoint, I would love to play in this offense. Just absolutely love to play in it. And I think the other thing with it is that this, this team is unselfish. They realize that those weapons realize that, that they're going to get enough touches and enough targets their direction uh, overall. But everybody's going to benefit within this offense. And, and it's all because of number 15. Yeah, for sure. And, and you see that in with Sammy Watkins taking the pay cut to stay. You know, and that's also, also kind of leads me to my next question. And as the years go on, right, we see Travis Kelsey got his, um, he got his new contract. Tyreek Hill re-signed last year. Uh, Nicole's still on his rookie deal. But do you see, as we go forward with Patrick Mahomes and kind of see the, you know, the legend that, you know, that, that becomes like, that, that, you know, he's not in his prime yet, right? So when, once right. He, as he becomes this guy, he, hopefully he'll become be, get, continue to get better and better and better. Do you think we'll start to see more of these, like, veteran types of receivers coming to Kansas City for a one- or two-year contract and taking these kind of small deals just to play with them and get their rings? Like, kind of, kind of like what we saw in basketball with teams going to play with – like, guys going to play with LeBron just to win a ring. Do you think we'll kind of see that kind of uh, happen in Kansas City, KC? Yeah, yeah, I can see that happening. I certainly can. Now, you know, this team is going to be built here with salary cap ramifications over the next couple of years uh, and have to rely on drafting well, right, with Brett Veach and, and everything else there. But – I could certainly see a scenario, though, where you get some guys that come in on a one- or two-year deal potentially to want to play. And anytime you've got a player of his caliber, you'll st- you see that around the league. You always have. And I don't think it's necessarily so much on the offensive side, too, but I think you're going to see it on the defensive side of the football as well because you've got a situation where obviously you're defending Super Bowl champions at this point, but you know that you've got Patrick Mahomes locked in to a long-term deal. You know, you've got some of these other weapons locked into long-term deals. So it's going to be an opportunity for guys, even on the defensive side to say, Hey, I might go there and take a one-year deal. Cause it's an opportunity for me to play for a ring, knowing they've got a franchise quarterback. And as long as he's quarterback in this team, I've got a shot to potentially, you know, win a world championship every year. So I think it's twofold. I think number one, you will see that on the offensive side, whether it's an offensive lineman or, or wide receiver or a potential running back in, in, in some scenario, but I also look at that from both sides of the ball, a defensive side as well, that you're going to get some guys that may be one or two year plug and play type of veterans that are going to want to come here because of the attractiveness of the situation. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see how this, everything unfolds. You know, we'll be hamstrung by conch, by, by cap, by our, you know, salary capping with our contracts that we have, but I mean that we have a talent like that. It'll attract guys to come in and forget about salary for a year or two to try to get a ring. So I, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see how that unfolds. So we're going to go to kind of college football, you know, uh, as a, as a former D division two and D three football player, I, I transferred around a little bit, seeing a guy like you as an NAIA player, you know, growing up, I, I watched the chiefs. I, I was, you know, I loved it, you know, and encyclopedia with chiefs knowing that you went to Hastings college, right. As mm-hmm. a, what kind of Northern Virginia knows at Hastings college, right? <laughs> the uh, NAIA actually, postpone the championships so they're going to let some uh, some teams kind of uh, go with the regulations and play play out in this fall and then playoffs will be taken in the spring what are your thoughts on NAIA's decision to, to to go with that well I think in the environment we live in right now it's it's difficult right and uh you know my father spent you know close to 30 40 years in athletics uh as an athletic administrator and athletic director and was AD at Northwest Missouri State here obviously national powerhouse in the division two level of football I then served as the commissioner of the MIAA conference, um, you know, at the end of his career before retiring. And so I've got some experience and, and somebody to lean on when you, you asked me this question about, you know, about moving st- sports in the spring. And I also spent time working at the NAI national office here uh, for about three years as well. I, I think it's this, I think you start looking at, 
the overall health and safety of individuals and bringing kids back on campus um, in the climate we're in, there's just so much that's unknown, right? And it's a difficult decision that, that high schools are looking to have to make now of, of risk versus reward and the mental health of kids and letting them play. You know, in the NEIA's case, they're moving this, the, you know, their, uh, their championships to the spring. NCAA Division Two has done that as well. But there's also no guarantee here in January, February, March of next year, seven, eight months from now, that we're not going to be in the same situation. So I think it's a situation you got to kind of figure out how to navigate it. And you got to kind of figure out how to test it. Because if you're not going through with any sports at all in the fall here, how do you test it? Now, that being said, Hastings College, as you brought up, where I went to school, um, they play in the Great Plains Athletic Conference. Their, their conference is going forward with football this fall and fall sports. Um, the Heart of America Conference right here in Kansas City, NAI schools uh, in the region between uh, Kansas City, a little bit of Nebraska and Iowa, is going forward with football as well and fall sports. So we're going to see how this is going to work out, you know, in, in a couple ways uh, when you start looking at things. Uh, but it's a difficult decision to make. I'm glad I'm not in athletic administration where I have to make that decision. You know, what's in the best interest? In the NCAA Division II case, it was the new protocols and mandates that, that came out from the NCAA that forced the Division II to say, hey, we got to move this to spring because it was not cost effective at all. In fact, it would bankrupt some of these schools to get these kids tested three times a week yeah. um, just in order to participate. And so there's a lot that goes into it. It's, it's a sad time. It's a sad deal, but it's just the, the nature of what we're living in right now. And, you know, I'm concerned myself if we don't have high school sports here in the state of Kansas or in the state of Missouri uh, about the mental health of these kids, um, because it's not just about going to school. It's about their overall well-being. And, you know, these kids are going to find a way to play specifically at the high school level. I know we're talking about college here, but they're going to find a way to go play somewhere. Now, football's a little different story. You can't just go play club football. Right. But your volleyballers, your soccers, your baseballers, you know, if you're not playing, they don't go forward with four, uh, fall football here at a high school level in the state of Kansas. Those two sport athletes that play baseball are just going to go play fall baseball and they're going to do it. And so at some point we've got to learn to, to kind of navigate it and test this out. But somebody's got to be the guinea pig. And, and unfortunately, we're not talking about, you know, some little administrative piece, we're talking about a pandemic that, you know, potentially could kill people, right? So it, it's a difficult deal. It's disappointing that there's not going to be some college football. Uh, it looks like we may get some college football at the Division One level this year, too. Yeah. Uh, but we don't know yet, right? We still don't know. And that's the, that's the unsettling part of it. Yeah, and I know, like you said, on the high school aspect, I know I'm in Northern Virginia, my brother's a football coach here in uh, the quarterback who's getting looked at by D1 schools, he's going to – he has his uncle who lives in Florida. He's going to Florida to, to play high school football, yep. you know. So, I mean, you're seeing a lot of these kids transfer either to private schools or just going out of state and just going to finish their high school career somewhere just so they can play. So, there's that alternative for, for, for high school football. But, again, it's a question mark as to – it's, it's the unknown still. So, um, these guys can – these conferences can plan their schedules now, but who knows what's actually going to happen at the end of the day. Absolutely. Uh, so for the D1 guys, as you mentioned, um, some of the conferences who aren't playing, you got the Big Ten, who's the, kind of the big one, Big Big Ten and Pac-12 are the ones who aren't playing in the fall. Do you see this? how this is going to kind of impact the NFL draft coming up? I mean, because you got to imagine some of these seniors you know, won't risk getting injured to play in the springtime if they're getting ready for the draft in April. Um, they said they can move the draft around, but, I mean, those guys who skip the bowl game because they don't want to get injured for the draft. I mean, do you think that's going to happen? I mean, will you see a lot of junior, or juniors or seniors just not play in the spring if there is spring football for the D1 level? 
You know, I think if there's spring football, I think you're going to see that. You know, we already saw a couple kids already opt out. The, the kid that's a defensive back at Virginia Tech, right, that already opted out uh, earlier, um, you know, going to be a top prospect. I think you're going to see that from some of the top prospects, especially if it's in the spring. Um, they may look at it and go, okay, I'm, they're going to consult with the people and get their draft grades and, and get all that off of what they did their junior year and then have to make that decision on what they want to do. I can tell you this, the NFL may be willing to move their draft a little bit, but they're not going to move it. They already had to, to go virtual this year, right, with it. And there's so many logistics that come into play with the NFL draft now with them moving it to other cities, to hotel rooms and everything else that goes into all of that, that I don't see them just moving the draft unless it's going to go back to a virtual draft again like they did a year ago. Um, if it's physically still going to be at a city, and I'm trying to remember where it's at this, this coming year. I know it was supposed to be in Vegas last year, and they yeah. moved it supposed to come to Kansas City here in a couple of years, maybe in Cleveland, I think. But anyway, regards to that, they're not going to move their draft that much to accommodate it, you know. And if these schools at the NCAA Division One level, the FBS schools, if you will, start playing in January or early February, there's still going to be some time to evaluate those guys. But I would not be surprised to remember you also got the NFL Combine that happens at the end of February. You know, I could see them moving the Combine more than the draft. But what do these guys do? Do they play, you know, half their season? If their team doesn't look like they're going to be in, uh, in the mix for a national championship, do they bow out halfway through? Or do they just take that route where they don't play? I think you're going to see quite a few kids that do that. Um, you know, each one has to make their own decision and what they feel is best for them. Some will make the wrong decision because they think they're going to be higher, drafted higher than they already are. Or those guys that come out early every year that don't even get drafted. But it'll, uh, you know, it remains to be seen what that's going to happen. Again, we're still living in this unknown, but I certainly could see it happening, especially these teams from the Big Ten, the Pac-12, et cetera, that have already pushed off, um, you know, to potentially play, play in the spring. Yeah, because, I mean, you have to imagine a lot of these guys don't even play in the bowl games just because they don't want to get hurt, and that's just one game, let alone the whole season, right? Yeah, and this is all a trend that we – and this is the other piece of that, too. You just mentioned it with the bowl games. We've seen that trend over the last several years, right? That never used to be the case. We never used to see that. The only guys would not play in a bowl game is because they knew they were coming out for the draft and didn't go to class in the fall, so they were ineligible to play in the bowl game, right? That was basically it. Otherwise, now it's guys are looking at it going, okay, I want to make money. I want to go to the NFL. I want to preserve and do not want to get hurt. And it all probably started when Willis McGee blew out his knee, you know, for Miami back in the day yeah. on all that stuff. That And, and obviously, he went on to have a, a good NFL career anyway, but those types of things happen and guys are again, back to the risk reward are going to weigh what that risk is for them. And if you've got the opportunity, especially if you're a top prospect to be a first rounder, there's millions of dollars on the line for it. Yeah, well, for sure. And there's a question that I want to ask you as a person who you went undrafted, you played in the CFL with this year, when the NFL kind of amended the, 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 the I guess the regular season this year and how things are going to be played out. No preseason. Could you have imagined an NFL career without a preseason? You know, um, as not as a rookie, okay? Not as a rookie by any means. Uh, you know, once I became a veteran, I could see that. Um, no preseason games, it's going to be difficult for, for guys to show what they can do. And it's not so much necessarily about the preseason games to me. It's about that this has been a unique offseason that, those undrafted guys would normally have a rookie mini camp. Then they would have a mini camp. Then you'd go through your OTAs, which is your organized team activities, throughout the first part of the summer. Then have about a month off and then go to training camp. So they've missed 
probably about 25 to 30 extra practices or times that they could really show not in pads, of course, at this point for those, for those activities, but show what they can do right in an athletic setting, how they're picking up the offense, things like that, that all garner you more time in training camp that all garner you more time in preseason games to, to, to get a look at by your coaches. And then not just for your current organization that you're at, but potentially for other teams around the league to look at you. And that's the big thing to me that having a couple of these preseason games or all of them in this case canceled is that it's not so much about those games for those kids, but also the opportunity that they've had all summer, they haven't been able to, to show what they can do. And so their opportunities are going to be even more limited. And especially now when you don't have zero preseason games, we all know that in the first couple of preseason games, it used to be like when I played starters would play like a drive and then be done. Now we're starting to see some of these guys uh, and your, your elite players not playing hardly at all in the preseason or only playing one game or only a quarter in a game, things like that. But, but now going into training camp here, you're not getting guys ready as a whole. If you're Andy Reid and you look at the Kansas City Chiefs, I think they're at an advantage, first of all, because they've got so many guys coming back from a year ago. Yeah. And they haven't had an offseason, which, which I think is an advantage to them. But second of all, you're worried about getting your starters ready to play and your, your top draft picks up to speed and your free agents up to speed. Not some of your undrafted guys or your lower round draft picks. Those guys are just going to end up on the practice squad at this point. You know, they're not even going to have necessarily an opportunity to make the, the opening roster because you don't have any preseason games. You hit September, that first game, you know, it's live, right? It, it counts for something. And so you're worried about getting those guys ready to play and your team ready to play to come out of the gate to start the season well as opposed to trying to bring these guys up. So you're starting to see some of these teams in training camp now a little bit doing some kind of split squad stuff so they can get more of these younger guys some reps. But it's definitely a disadvantage for them this year. Yeah, and I was talking to uh, actually former teammate of yours, Eric Warfield, a couple weeks ago, and he was just saying that the first four games of this year, that's that's regular season. That's regular season. Yeah. This is all into one for the guys, t- the top rookies who are, who are going to be playing, getting some playing time. I mean that's going to be their, their their first action. It's not it's not it's not it's not a game that doesn't count. It's going to be real. It's a real deal. So it's going to be interesting to watch for a guy like Clyde Edwards-Helaire, for example. You know, for, first carry is going to be week one of the NFL season in prime time. So that's uh, going to be interesting to watch. Um, the question I I always had uh, after you left uh, Kansas City, you you went from Trent Green to playing with, let me see what I get the order correct. You went to uh, Brett Favre and then uh, Indianapolis, or is it Indianapolis and Green Bay? No, it was Green Bay first and then Indianapolis, yep. Okay. So what, what was kind of, what did you learn from being able to play with Trent Green, Brett Favre, and Peyton Manning? What was kind of some stories you have of, of those three of those three legends at quarterback? Well, really good quarterbacks, obviously, <laughs> right? Okay. Two Hall of Famers and, and Trent, um, odd stuff, but – yeah, I left uh, Kansas City as an unrestricted free agent and went to Green Bay in, in 06 and was there uh, pretty much the entire offseason and through a little bit of training camp, uh, through a couple of preseason games. And, of course, that was Aaron Rodgers' second year there, um, you know, behind Brett Favre. Um, the only Brett Favre story I've got that's a good one, I guess, is, is during, during practice and during training camp, um, that year in 06 when I was there, uh, I was running a curl route and Brett threw it about 12 – you know, 11, 12 feet in the air to me. Okay. And it was an absolute bullet. And of course I decided to jump up and try to get it. And it came right off the tip of my finger uh, right here and, and broke my finger. Okay. And so 
I knew I had to get an x-ray afterwards and stuff. And I, I was in the x-ray room coming out and he walks around in the training room and says, well, what's the story? And I just had a small little hairline fracture in it. And he looked at it and said, man, I'm getting old. I used to, sh I used to shatter those things is what he said, you know, it's everything. <laughs> and we all laughed about it. And he was a great guy and enjoyed my time, obviously in Green Bay. It didn't work out for me to make the team there. I was cut like on a Thursday, uh, maybe a Tuesday. I was on a plane the next morning out of Green Bay at 6 a.m. to go to Indianapolis and, and played in a preseason game uh, basically two, week, or two days later uh, down in Mississippi against the Saints. And so it was a whirlwind for me a little bit and then got released uh, right at the end of the preseason with, with uh, Indianapolis. But just being around those guys, and this goes for Trent, you know, Brett. Uh, Brett was obviously a character in his own right uh, on stuff, but the – the amount of detail that those guys spent on stuff, um, you know, and things. And, and, and Green Bay was a little bit different for Brett, I think, that year because that was Mike McCarthy's first year as a head coach. So there were some changes to the system. It was still the same system, but, you know, Mike was adapting some of the verbiage uh, to what they'd done in the past, even though it's the same route concept of the West Coast offense and, and getting all those things put together to what Brett felt comfortable with on stuff um, than the other two situations for sure. But, but their attention to detail throughout practice and, and also being coaches on the field and what they liked and, and what they were reading and things. And I was always a big concept guy. I've mentioned it several times, you know, in terms of how I learned. And I knew every position from a wide receiver standpoint and, and you know, being a smart wide receiver. And when I say smart, you saddle up to the quarterback and understand what he's thinking, right? You talk to him, you, you don't just demand the football you ask what they're looking at, what they want out of you, so that you present yourself, you know, more opportunities to potentially get the football. And so just sitting around and picking those guys' brains on things. And, and Peyton was this way, too. He was tremendous in terms of his, his uh, you know, his, his preparation, even in the preseason when you looked at things. He treated everything in the preseason like it was the regular season. So blessed to have uh, been able to catch, you know, balls in a game from Trent. Uh, caught a couple balls in a preseason game from Aaron Rodgers, but but be, just being able to practice and catch footballs from two Hall of Famers is uh, not a bad thing at all, even in practice. For sure. Do you see a lot of the um, similarities that people say that Mahomes is like a Brett Favre, is like an Aaron Rodgers? Do you see? I mean, playing with those two dudes, do you, do, do you kind of see the the, um... the similarities there? Yeah, I do. I do. You know, that was a big thing with with uh, Mahomes coming out of uh, Texas Tech, right? The knock was his footwork and his mechanics, but he was a gunslinger like Brett Favre and can throw it. Um, and Aaron Rodgers has a tremendous arm too. I think this is one thing that, that people don't always realize too. As a receiver, you recognize quarterback talent pretty quickly, right? In terms of when the ball's on time, the anticipation, things like that. And then catching the football, the zip on the ball and what the ball is like when it's coming at you. Because – Quarterbacks throw a different style of ball. You can have a, a guy that's throwing it. If you put a radar gun on them, they're throwing the same speed. But some quarterbacks, you know, we go back, let's go to baseball as an example, spin rate, right, uh, in terms of fastballs, curveballs, sliders, things like that. Some quarterbacks have more revolutions of the football when it's coming in. So it's coming in tighter. It's a lot softer to catch. And some, it just seems like a heavy ball. And so, you know, when you look at these guys on that and you start comparing it to Patrick Mahomes, they see a lot of the similarities in terms of his arm strength. But then I think you're starting to see the evolution. And Aaron Rodgers was always this way with Green Bay, and I saw this in practice when I was there. It was all about his footwork. And it wasn't that it was always the best footwork. It was just he always put his body in positions to make the throw 
how he needed to make the throw for, for what worked for him. And I think you're seeing Patrick Mahomes do that as well with the low arm slots and just the way he throws with his footwork. You know, Trent was much more mechanical. Peyton was much more mechanical. That's just what worked for the way their mechanics were, what worked best for them in, in terms of how they threw the football in terms of their athleticism. But, yeah, there's some definite similarities watching Patrick Mahomes play than and there are. And I think you're starting to see just from the mental side of things for him too that as he continues to learn and understand what defenses are doing to him, it's only going to, you know, if he can raise his level of play, it's only going to get raised at this point. Yeah, and it was on that sh- the HBO show where he said he just learned – he's just starting to learn defenses. And that is, it's like, what? You've, you've won a Super Bowl and, you know, you're just starting to learn – just starting to read defenses properly. It's insane. The guy's, that, the guy's insane. Um, just, and, and I'm glad that KC finally has him after years, you know. You know, I wouldn't say poor quarterback play, but, you know, not Patrick Mahomes. You know, it's, it's – Well, <laughs> and I think the other thing with it is they've drafted this guy, right? You know, Trent was a free agent. Alex Smith was a, was a fine quarterback when he was here. Right. Um, it's great, to, by the way, it's great to see him back and getting cleared to play after his horrific injury and stuff too. Yeah. That's fan. We're all, everybody in Kansas city is happy to see that. Cause he was such a great guy. Um, and a great leader and did his thing. He was just, you know, he's a different style of quarterback. And I think that's the one thing with Patrick Mahomes here too. Now is that this is quote a homegrown guy that they drafted, um, and, and have developed and, and they hit it out of the, out of the park with this one for sure. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to, you know, you know, Playing to the strengths. I think Andy Reid's done a great job, and he's always done that, you know, with Kevin Cobb, McNabb. He's always done the playing to the strengths. And I think in, in this modern age, he's kind of taken a lot of the air raid systems that have been in the Big 12 for so long, and, you know, you've seen aspects of that. But now he's kind of embraced that and kind of added his little spice to it, you know, and that's what he's done with Patrick. I think, I, I think it's awesome. You know, as, as a Big 12 football fan myself, I love the high-scoring offense. It, it's, it's fun to see that we have that. And, and with, with, with our squad now. So I think that's what the other thing with Andy, I think on it that, that I think, and you hit it on the head is if you want to call it college concepts, air raid concepts, right, whatever, however you want to look at it, but it's understanding what your players do well, right. And what makes them comfortable. And because when you start getting down to route trees and, and different things, a lot of the concepts in the passing game are all the same. They've just evolved over the years. Maybe it's getting more guys out in routes different some different concepts you know possibly in there but it's all a copycat league and everybody copies off each other and these these NFL coaches are calling college coaches to understand their offenses and and vice versa as it goes but you're adapting to the personnel you have and I think that's a sign of a great coach and specifically when you talk about Andy because so many over the years so much has been talked about when these quarterbacks come out from the draft is well he's not really a pro style quarterback right you know he's played in the this wide open spread offense. How's he going to take snaps under center? You know, well, look around the NFL, you know, during Peyton Manning's last years in Denver, he wasn't under center all that much. They ran a lot out of the shotgun, right. And different stuff. It's how the game has evolved and how these coaches are evolving to, to get out of somewhat of their narrow mentality that they have in their head sometimes on, this is the way it needs to be done. This is the way we've always done it to look at it and say, okay, here's what our talent is. What can we do to maximize that talent? And it may, be, you have to grow as a coach, and Andy Reid's been able to adapt to that over the years. Yeah, and, and it's it's what you said, like how he kind of plays to every every quarterback's strength, and he, and he knows his quarterback strength. I mean, you know, whether it's whether it was Kevin Cobb, whether it's Bobby Hoying. I mean, you you, you go back back into the Eagles days, mm-hmm. he was winning games with guys who who probably wouldn't win with other teams. You know, and he, I mean, the Kevin Cobb example was great. He ended up trading him for a second round pick, and I don't think he really. I mean, I don't think he panned out in Arizona, but that's that's what Andy does. He's a quarterback whisperer. 
He um, is for sure. He is. So, okay, we're going to go to the final, uh, the lightning round portion, which is the final 40-yard dash. The show's running the 40 with Marcus dash, so it's the final 40 right here. Um, we ask all of, our, uh, all of our guests, the first question is, what was your fastest 40-yard dash? Uh, the fastest I can remember, I ran a 4.42 at my individual pro day uh, coming, coming out of Canada uh, after the 2001 season. So I had a private workout in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, I had like about 24 teams that were interested in me at the time. And instead of taking a bunch of different visits around the country and working out everywhere, I decided to go kind of the individual combine route. And we had like 19 teams in attendance and uh, coming out of a small school, uh, of course, I really didn't have great times uh, or quality times that had been timed on me because I hadn't done a ton of stuff uh, on individual workouts. I went to a regional combine coming out of college that I ran a 4.43 at. Uh, and then I ran a 4.42 in front of uh, some general managers, of course, and, and directors of pro personnel uh, in Salt Lake City. And so, yeah, 4.42 is my 4 to 10. Damn, 4.42, and, and you're, you're, you're 6'5", right? Or 6'4", 6'5"? Yeah, 6'3", 6'4", yeah, right in there at 220 pounds. Yep, Jeez. at the time. Man, that's, that's, like, a, that's like a top three-round grade nowadays. <laughs> it should be, at least. It should, uh, should be, for sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, next question. Who was the defender guarding you during your 99-yard touchdown versus San Diego? Uh, I don't remember who was lined up on me, but Rogers Beckett was the safety that I got behind. He's the one that always shows up in the highlights for sure. He, 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 was, he was the defender. You, I think they were playing zone coverage, and that, that was who yeah. he went through his zone. So, yep. Rogers Beckett. <laughs> um, okay, next we're going to go a little CFL route. During the 2000 and 2001 seasons with the Calgary Stampeders, you scored 19 receiving touchdowns which in that two-year span was only second to what receiver on that team? Um, I think uh, the natural answer would be to say Alan Pitts, but he was only there, you know, not many people outside the CFL maybe know who Alan Pitts was, but he's the all-time, at the time, was the all-time leading receiver in CFL history. Uh, but I played one year with him. He was kind of my mentor in year one. Uh, but I think Travis Moore is probably the answer. We had a really good receiving core. My rookie year, we had four guys go over 1,000 yards oh, um, that I was in on the receiving core with Vince Danielson, myself, um, Travis, and then Alan Pitts in year one. Then year two, we didn't have as great a statistical year uh, on stuff, but uh, Vinny was still there and Travis was there. Travis was really our number one guy um, and big play guy, so I'll go with Travis. I don't know if that's right or not. But Yeah, Travis Moore edged you out by two. You had 21, you had 19. That ah, gotcha. <laughs> um, so besides being from a small school, what is some other type of adversity that you overcame to make it in the NFL? I know this is the kind of question I've been asking a lot of players, you know, that overcame adversity. And, you know, you came from Hastings College. And, I mean, at what point were you, were, were you like, you know, I'm, I'm actually going I'm, I'm to try to make it to the, the NFL or the CFL? I mean, coming from a, from a small school like that, you know, I went to D2, D3 school. I remember asking when I was a freshman, asking the, the guys, the top dogs on the team, like, how serious were you about trying to go to pros? And some would be like, you know, I'm, I'm going to try. But like you could tell they weren't like as dedicated about that. You know, that's, that, that's once you dedicate yourself to doing that, you, you all in. And, you know, you obviously, you obviously did that. So what kind of, what was kind of the adversity besides being from a small school that kind of like, you know, that either helped you drive to, to, to making the pros or just kind of like other things you had to overcome? I got you. Well, I think the, the thing for me was from a small school, I knew I was going to have an opportunity because we had some pro scouts through. And we had a, a guy by the name of Jerry Drake, who was a defensive tackle, played like nine years in the NFL. Most of those are the Arizona Cardinals that actually came from Hastings around 1993, 94. So we had some pro scouts coming through. 
Um, I knew I was going to have an opportunity. I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, long story short, we had some connections to some people in the CFL through our staff at Hastings who made some calls about me. I got a call uh, from Calgary like on a Tuesday and said, we're having a free agent tryout camp in Dallas, Texas on Saturday. Can you be down there? It's invitation only. So I drove nine hours with my father down on Friday to work out. And really for me, it was about, and it obviously went well because I got a call on the following Monday or Tuesday to sign. And so I did. For me, it was about my mentality was I, I thought I could play at a higher level, but I didn't know until I got there, right, type of thing. And then got to CFL training camp, did uh, fantastic throughout camp. The first, my first catch as a pro in the preseason, I took the ball like 40 yards for a touchdown, my first reception. And once I got up there, I knew I could play. And then it was about taking the next step to the NFL. And the adversity piece that I had here, I, I lucked out because Tony Gonzalez was holding out. And I talked earlier about all those OTAs and off-season pieces that I got plugged into a lot of his routes through all our OTAs and minicamp because he wasn't there. Um, and that helped me understand the scope of the offense, but it also helped me show what I can do. And then I think the biggest thing for me, my rookie year in 2002 was I got appendicitis like the third day of training camp. And so I was running routes and I remember our receivers coach was a hall of famer and Charlie Jordan coming up to me and asked me what was wrong. And I was like, I got this pain in my stomach. I didn't know if I pulled something or what the deal was in my abdomen area. Got checked out afterwards and, and got my appendix out that night in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Cause of course our training camp was in river falls, Wisconsin, like 45 minutes away. So I missed basically every single preseason game except the final one Jeez. and so again for me going back to everything I had done in OTAs and minicamp really set the stage for me to be able to make the team as a rookie uh, because of all that and so that type of adversity for me was you know I went from okay I'm feeling really good about things I'm gonna make this team to the old adage you can't make the club if you're in the tub type of deal and it's not because I pulled a hamstring it was because I had appendicitis and had to get my appendix out so and of course with that couldn't have contact for two or three weeks and you know everything else along with that so that was a big thing for me but I think in terms of overcoming that piece early on and of course I tore my ACL in 2004 but and that's part of you know what happens in playing football in the game but I think for me, it was just a matter of proving myself at the next level. I always thought I could play, and my attitude going into it in Canada was, I'm going to give this every shot I have to play because I want to play football, and if it doesn't work out for me, I'll go, you know, go get a normal job somewhere, right, and, and just move on and say, hey, it was a good run, and this, I had a great college career, and this is what it is. But it turned out to really be, you know, seven, eight years of professional football from a small NAI school. And I decided, I, you know, I went back to the CFL in 2007 to play. I still could have, you know, was, went back to Calgary and then ended in Toronto, but, but still could have played up there if I wanted to. And I just kind of decided at the age of 30 at that point that, you know, I've been through a lot. It's been a great, uh, great run coming out of a small school and overcame a lot just to get to where I was to have that opportunity. And I made the most of it. And, and, and so I called it good at that point. Now, I think your story and your wisdom is like needed for a lot. A lot of these kids with morale being so low with, high school sports being canceled, seniors and juniors not being able to get that, that final year because some may not even have a spring season. So I think stor stories like this, I think, are really necessary to hear for a, a lot of these, like, these kids who, you know, my, my brother coaches in high school and stuff. So I think they need to hear stories like this. So I think it's very, very encouraging to hear, for hear what you had to say and what you kind of went through, you know. Because, you know, you may not have gone through the COVID, right, but you had your own adversity to go with. And I think that's – Yeah, that's absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and that leads to my, my final two-part question right here. Um, 
What advice do you have to the receivers who may not make it to an NFL, make it on an NFL roster by the end of training camp this year, and to the D two and D three players and NAIA players whose football seasons are, are could be canceled if they do have a spring season, if they don't have a spring season? What, what kind of your advice to all those all those people? Well, I think my advice to them is, you know, not every opportunity for you is the right opportunity, especially in the NFL. There's 30 – if you're on one team, there's 31 other teams, okay? So – and this goes back to not having a preseason game or where it's a struggle is that, you know, you got to keep fighting for your opportunity. And sometimes your opportunity is going to be with a different organization, a different system, and a different, you know, coaching staff that may like you better. And when I say like you better, may feel that like you fit in better to their system than your current situation. Sometimes you're just in a roadblock uh, for those kids that, that may get cut this year, receivers or any other position in the NFL. But they're just other guys ahead of you that have been there, right? And, and a guy that, you know, like how would you want to be a quarterback coming in right now getting drafted to be the backup for Patrick Mahomes, right? You know you're only one snap away. Right. But say you started at, you know, a major the power five conference, and you're like, I can play in this league, but I got drafted here in the sixth or seventh round. You know, where's my opportunity going to be? You never know when your opportunity is going to come up. And that's the thing with it is you got to stay with it, stay working hard, and just understand that your opportunity, you know, probably is going to come or give yourself every single opportunity. And then for, you know, the kids that are out there, like for me, coming from a small school, as I mentioned before, I just wanted to keep playing. And so I saw this when my first year in Canada in 2000, that there are guys that had been in the NFL that came up there and, not a lot of people know this about the time they've since expanded some of the rosters, but there's a Canadian to, you know, American ratio in terms of how many guys can be on the roster, right? That you can only put so many American guy born guys on the roster, et cetera. So I came in basically fighting for one receiver spot with 10 other guys on the American side of things. Yeah. And I won that job, but you look at it and you say, okay, but there were so many guys that came up there with the attitude that were like, I'm just up here to get some film and then head back South for the league. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's about making the most of the opportunity of where you're at at that time. Because if you're good enough, they're going to find you. And, and if you make the most of that opportunity at, and are happy with what you're doing and accept your role on the team, you're going to be in good shape. And if, you know, I obviously was successful in my first two years in Canada. If it didn't work out for me in the NFL, I was having a blast playing in the CFL. I could have played up there, you know, forever uh, and just spent my entire career up there. But fortunately, I got a chance to, to come to the league for four or five years and, and obviously made that opportunity because it was my ultimate dream once I knew I could play. Um, but it's don't look down on any other opportunity that's out there, whether the XFL comes back or another spring football league comes back. You never know where those opportunities are going to be at that could help you get to where you want to go. And even if you don't ultimately reach where you want to go, take advantage of that and still play as long as you can if you want to play. That, that's the piece to me that you know, like I said, I had seven, eight years. And after that, I was like, you know, I've been cut, you know, four or five times here down the stretch. It's, it's time now that, that I want to walk away at 30. It's been a good run. It's because it came from a small school, but that fire is still burning in me today to play, <laughs> you know, it's everything. I know I can't do it at 42 right now, you know, with my knees and everything else, but that fire never leaves you. So just play as long as you possibly can until you say, you know, until somebody tells you it's time to, to hang it up because that's, that's ultimately as athletes, you'll, you know, kind of dumb cliche is we die twice we die once you know we die when we die but then the other time we die is the first time is after you know our athletic career is over because you know it's going to end father time is undefeated for us right and some most guys don't get a chance to walk out on their own terms you know and even you can even look at that at the the high school level the kids that aren't going to play in college or the college level the kids that aren't going to go play 
at a professional level, you know, you're told when your time is done. It's not your choice, right? Your eligibility is exhausted. You can't go play a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth year at, at Hastings College if you wanted to. You know, it's just not how it works, right? Right. And so you, you just got to make the most of those opportunities and, and enjoy the time you're there because I don't miss – I get asked a lot, do I miss playing? Yeah, I miss playing. But I, I don't miss training camp. I don't miss the practices. I miss the day before games and I miss the games. And, and I miss the locker room. That's the other piece. You miss the camaraderie with all the guys and they're all the time. Awesome, man. I, I, re I really enjoyed that, especially, and I, I know a lot of these younger players that I can, I can go back and show a lot of the, the high school football players in the area, pretty much what, what, what you just said right there, everything you, you said. And I think that's a lot of value in that. Um, and I think at a time where the morale is so low, I think understanding what you kind of, and, and I think a lot of what you just say is enjoying the moment, you know, don't think about like, oh yeah, like what you said, you know, I'm going to play in CFL for a couple of years and then go back down, get my tape and go back down. Forget about that. Enjoy, enjoy the moment, you know? And I think a lot of these kids, if they do have a spring season, and I, I know that some, it's going to be a shortened season if they do have a spring and at least a high school mm -hmm. round, three or four games and enjoy the three or four games, you know, you know, you got to deal, you got to deal with the situations as they come. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think at the end of the day, it's what everyone's got to do. It is. And when you start looking at the high school football and even the college level getting moved to spring and these, these are unique times. Nobody in our generation has lived through a pandemic, right? They, nobody is, we have, we have not been through this before. And so it's uncharted territory and it, it sucks. It sucks for a lot of ways. We all want to be able to watch college football on Saturdays. I want to be able to broadcast college football games like I've done the last five years on Saturdays. Can't do that this fall based on, you know, what's happening. Um, but for these kids, it, it's, it's not their fault. Obviously, this is happening. It just is a part of life that we're going through right now. And so if you do get the opportunity to play a couple games, make the most of those games. Um, and if you don't, unfortunately, um, you know, it just is what it is. And it sucks. And my heart goes out to them. And, and I want to watch high school football here in Kansas this fall. You know, um, I'm scheduled to do some high school games here locally on TV I've done the last year or so and, and crossing my fingers, I'm going to be able to do that. And I just enjoy watching football and doing that. But if it goes away, it goes away. And it's, we just have to understand that it's, it's about, you know, the greater peace for humanity right now and trying to keep everybody safe from this just because there are so many unknowns right now. And that's the part that that's awful, but it is what it is. It's just what the situation is right now. It's, I think it's more important. How do we, how do we handle that situation moving forward? and pressing forward with it. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the um, younger kids are going to benefit from this. They'll, they'll come out much much stronger than, you know, you know, like I said, no other generation has, has dealt with the pandemic, you know, and so, and, and now, and I, I think this younger generation is going to be come out, come out tougher, you know, I think uh, Gen Z millennials got a bad rap, but I think, you know what, I think Gen Z is going to uh, work out all right in this one. <laughs> They're much more adaptable. I'll say this, that, that generation is much more adaptable than, than my generation or even people older than me in terms of adapting to things, right? I, I, I've seen it in my own kids. Like I said, I said before, I'm worried about kids' mental health and everybody's mental health on this, but, but, but they're stronger than they think they are uh, in terms of all this and understand that we're all in this together. I think that's the other piece to this, that, that everybody's in this together and we may not agree on either side of it in a lot of ways, but at the end of the day, we're all in it together. For sure. Wise words from Mark Boerichter. Mark, thanks a lot for coming on, man. I, I plan on keep, to continue to do this throughout the season. I don't know if you want to come on and uh, talk some uh, Chiefs shop with me during the season. Yeah, absolutely. Hit me up. Hopefully uh, we keep pressing forward, right, with uh, the NFL season so far at this point. And, yeah, we can chop it up. Awesome. I really appreciate it, buddy. All right. Thanks, man. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.